On the one hand, I'm a patient and I'm a victim. On the other hand, I am a physician, included three years of psychosomatic medicine. I got sick from finasteride, which is a hairless treatment. Sexuality got really, really bad. I, I started to get gastrointestinal problems. The insomnia was the worst. Suddenly I, I started not to have any sleep at all. And there's no education on this. Like of all specialities, psychiatry is the worst. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. When Dr. Simon Breeder tried to discontinue use of the hair growth medication finasteride, he experienced a myriad of very disturbing and disabling symptoms, but the medical system doesn't recognize post-finasteride syndrome and has labeled anyone who says they experience those symptoms as hysterical. Dr. Breedert was now confronted by his own profession's deeply embedded medical bias. Simon was experiencing horrible physical symptoms, but the healthcare system had already decided his diagnosis is psychosomatic. Talk about major cognitive dissonance. Simon had to reconcile years of medical education that psychologizes everything it does not yet understand with his own body's experience. Simon and I talk about how his body broke down, his hellish healthcare journey, and the strategies he employs to manage post-finasteride syndrome. Simon also shares what he now thinks of the medical system, psychiatry, and psychosomatic medicine, and how he's leveraging the trauma of serious illness and medical marginalization and gaslighting into growth by founding the charity PFS Research. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Simply go to patreon.com to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Dr. Simon Breedert, and a word of warning is always that Simon's experiences with the healthcare system may be a trigger for some people. Simon it is. Okay. Thanks, Simon. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yeah, I, I grew up in Germany, in a very central place of Germany. And my, my parents, they were pastors. So I was growing up in a very protected world without many problems. Yeah, I used to be a very creative child and I, I was very much interested in into signs and uh, I was a bit nerdy uh, but I think I think my childhood was pretty normal yeah I have an older brother he's nine years older than me and an older sister she's about seven years older than me yeah my health was good I mean like like all children I had like normal normal illnesses like like flus and 
influenza and maybe sometimes cough uh, or belly pain and stuff like that. I mean, there was nothing, nothing bigger. I didn't have any bigger issues with my body or brain or anything. Yeah. Okay. And, but today we're going to talk about how your life intersected with the healthcare system. So take us on that journey. Yeah. Oh, where do, where do I start? Um, so maybe, maybe it's very interesting because on the one hand, I'm a patient and I'm a victim. On the other hand, I am a physician. I, I, I have uh, my background is medicine. I studied medicine, finished med school, and I started the um, specialization for psychosomatical medicine. In my case, it included three years of psychosomatical medicine, and I also spent a year in psychiatry as a doctor, and then also worked in uh, child and youth psychiatry. Before I, before I got sick, I got sick from finasteride, which is a, which is a hairless uh, treatment. Um, so I was, I was pretty late with, with GERDs. Um, so my first girlfriend I had when I was 22 and I was a pretty shy guy. I, I was coming from a very small town, so I didn't have many chances to meet GERDs. Uh, in, in my studies, yeah, I just had that one girlfriend and later a second one. And in the, I think it was my, about when I was 26, I started to break out and to date more girls and to, to get a little bit more free. And I really enjoyed that time. But one year later, I noticed that my, my hair uh, was falling, starting to fall out. And I, I really, really freaked out because I just discovered this new freedom and I was like experiencing myself. And then I felt like, okay, this, this maybe is, is gonna be soon over. And I, I really got panic. I, I think I was just starting to, to become a, a physician, but I found it pretty unprofessional to just like give myself the medicine, which I did later, but um, so I went for consultation at a dermatologist. And she said, she said like, yeah, you have these two treatment options. There's minoxidil, which, which is like a, a solution that you can put on your hair, but after two years, probably it's not gonna work anymore. And then you can switch to finasteride, which is a, uh, also, which is a pill and which is yeah blocking the conversion of testosterone to dehydrotestosterone which is yeah meant to be the main cause for for uh, androgen uh, associated hair loss i i wasn't very keen on taking a pill and also looked into the liter literature so i felt safer with starting with with a solution and i was really great like my hair Personally, I felt like my hair was growing stronger. I had like darker hair, it was like thicker. I even got more beard growth. But then after two years, like it, it indeed lost some efficiency. And I had a good time at that time. Uh, but then I really, really fell in love with a younger lady. Yeah, I noticed that I started really losing a lot of hair and I, I, I really freaked out again. I was like, okay, I have to try something else. So I was considering finasteride, but before I wanted to see the side effects. So I, I was looking for, I was looking also online in, into forums. Some people said they had erectile dysfunction from it or depression. I did, couldn't confirm them with any studies, you know, from in medical school, we learn if you look into forum, it's always cancer. So be careful and always look at the literature. And there were some literature saying these people are hysterical. And that time I was in psychosomatic medicine. So it made sense to me that the depression maybe did come from, from, from psychological backgrounds of hair loss and not from the medication itself. So I thought like, okay, I could just look for depression, any signs of depression or erectile dysfunction is gonna be fine. I'm just gonna stop the medication. And yeah, I started the medication in 2015. I didn't 
go to another appointment because um, the insurance doesn't give back the money. So it was completely private and I could buy this medication as a doctor, it was all safe. So I took the medication and I observed myself really well if there's any erectile dysfunction or depression and I was fine. So I took it, I didn't have any side effects. After about two years, I felt like uh, I noticed like very dry skin and eczema didn't draw any connection to the medication. So I took it another year. And then suddenly I, I felt like super restless, like from one day to another, it was really, really difficult for me to, to, yeah, to find the push off button. And I, I got also very severe insomnia, but I also didn't connect it to the medication because I was just looking for erectile dysfunction and depression. I didn't feel and in any way depressed or that I had any problems with my sexuality. So I went on taking the medication and I, I, I got by well, but one year later when I started to taper off the medication or, or for, first I was like, looking into the forum again and uh, discovering that some people got insomnia from, from this medication. When, then I was really shocked because I not only saw that they got insomnia from the medication, but that many people actually got the uh, a very persisting disease, a very, very bad disease, uh, including sexual dysfunction and, and depression and insomnia once they stopped the medication. So I was really scared and, and I thought like, okay, I'm gonna taper it. But with every step of tapering it, the symptoms got worse. My insomnia got worse. Sexuality got really, really bad. I, I started to get gastrointestinal problems. Yeah, but the insomnia was the worst. And over a course of maybe three months, it got worse and worse. Then, Suddenly I could only sleep like one hour a day for six weeks. And then, and then I've, suddenly I, I started not to have any sleep at all. Then I, I went into a cycle where I was awake for 48 hours and could only sleep every second day. So the people that were around you, your girlfriend, your family, your coworkers, how were they responding? I'm assuming they noticed yeah. What was happening to you? Yeah, uh, at that time, I actually wasn't working uh, in medicine. I was working in, a, I, I started in a, in a startup because it was always my big dream to move to Berlin and, and work in a startup. And friends of mine, they founded a new startup and I became a co-founder and, and it was a great time. I, I, I was like actually on the top of my life. I, I achieved everything I wanted. And suddenly I started to feel like a hundred year old guy. I, I told my coworkers, um, they, they didn't see much difference because I, I was just going on still working eight hours a day, although I didn't get much sleep. And, and yeah, I felt worse and worse. The day I, I completely stopped sleeping, I also told my parents, my family first, they couldn't really understand and believe what was going on. They were also a little bit angry why I took this medication, but actually until that point, there was no warning, no public warning against this medication. Actually during that time, I, I came together with uh, my girlfriend that I'm together with now. And it was really surprising to me that, that, she, that she felt attraction towards me and affection, although I felt like totally crippled. I felt so crippled. I, I, I felt like my brain is not working anymore. It was hard for me to think. I had constant brain fog. Yeah, and then, and headaches, hor horrible headaches. So yeah. a bunch of different systems affected. You mentioned your gut as well. So all of these different systems, at what point did you yeah. go to a doctor and say, hey, what's going on? It, it was really weird because I also noticed like um, my kidney function got a little bit worse, but not too much. Uh, I was just worrying because I was a doctor and then I, I knew how these values can be affected. So, but every appointment I did, they couldn't find anything precise. 
I made a sleep study and it was really weird because you have this different sleep stages and uh, one is called REM sleep. That's uh, rapid eye movement. That, that's when your eyes start uh, tickling around while you sleep. And that's usually when you dream. And this, this stage is very important for psychological recovery, but also to reset different systems in your body. Uh, when I did this analysis, uh, they found that I had zero minutes of REM sleep, which was really, really incredible. It's very rare that this happens. I didn't check this up again, but it was really, really weird. I also went to neurology. I, I saw psychiatrists all, I mean, I'm from the field. He, he, they couldn't really help. I was afraid to take any medication because there's other medications which can also cause the same syndrome. I just tried to, to go through this. And I hear people saying before that sleep deprivation is used for torture and I, I, I believe that that would be really bad, but I never could imagine how it really felt. I mean, I, I felt like 120 years old. Uh, I was weak. I thought I, I would die. Uh, I, I put away like all knives in the kitchen because I felt like I couldn't trust myself anymore. I promised my parents not to kill myself, but not for them, but because I was afraid of myself. I, I felt like how, how could I, I mean, if I don't have that much, I mean, if, if I have that little sleep, how could I trust myself? You know, maybe, maybe I do something really silly and I'm not aware of it. And it took me many, many months, um, but I, I got slightly better over time. I think the first improvements I had like after nine months, um, then I had like about three, three hours of sleep. And after another nine months, I had something like six hours of sleep. And yeah, with a lot of sports, with a lot of supplements, I, I finally made it up to five to seven hours of good sleep again. I, I had also lost like um, breast hair, muscles. Uh, I slowly started to regain a lot of these functions. Also, my sexuality got a lot better. Uh, I mean, there's still problems, but it's a lot better than, than it was. Uh, how long did it take you to taper off the thinnest stride? From when you ended until you uh, started to get back to the five, seven hours of sleeping, what was that time difference as well? Yeah, I, I tapered off the, I mean, like finasteride is usually prescribed in one milligram. So that's what I was taking. Actually, I think the symptoms started when I when I forget a dosage and then took like two pills and stuff like that. I tapered down to 200 micrograms very quickly within four months, but then the rest, it took me more than a year to taper the rest of these 200 micrograms. I felt like every time I taper, uh, it's gonna get worse and worse. So I, I literally, I made myself recipes, bought them in the pharmacy, uh, made like a long line of, uh, of this powder and took away like every day one millimeter until I finally, after one and a half years, reached zero. And I a little bit got better during that time, but it, I was still very broken. And it took from, from when I completely stopped, it still took me like five months to get a, a lot better. Now, not everything is, is good, but I'm, I, f I feel like my stamina is, is better. I feel like I, I can work again. I feel like I can participate in life again. Like some, some of the symptoms also included like completely loss of any emotions, affections, yeah, every kind of reward feelings. I, I was unable to get drunk. I, I could drink one, one bottle of wine and feel nothing. Uh, just like completely awake, completely aware. So being a science and medicine guy, what was going on with the medication in your body? That's a good question. I mean, the syndrome is called post-finasteride syndrome. It's not a recognized disease yet, but we have some studies going on from very good scientists. So we know the microbiome is affected. We know neurosteroids in, in, the, in the brain water are affected. 
We know that the sex hormones in the brain water are changed, but within the, within the blood, you won't find very significant changes. Probably what I think is um, that the tapering or when you, when you go off from the medication, maybe there's a surge of, of androgens which causes some kind of neuroinflammation. I mean, in, in the rat model they used, it showed also some kind of brain inflammation. We know this from other diseases um, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, ALS, um, also multiple sclerosis, probably also chronic fatigue syndrome, I guess, that once you have inflammation in your brain or, or in your central nervous system, it, it goes in cycles because the inflammation itself causes um, oxidative, oxidative stress, which leads to tissue damage and the tissue damage itself leads to inflammation again. And uh, it's very likely that there is the immune system is involved in some way. One study also showed that there is a methylation of a certain gene, which is also uh, responsible for creating uh, sexual hormones and neurosteroids. And probably this is one of, one of the causes for the symptoms. I think for people to get better or for science to find out more, it would be good to look at, at markers of neuroinflammation in the brain water and see if there's any inflammation going on and still persistent, how to, how to dampen this, how to stop the inflammation and how to go back to normal. In some ways, we seem to be like people who are prematurely aged. We feel like 120, we have erectile dysfunctions, we lose stamina, many of us lose um, um, muscle mass. And, and get a bit chub, chubby. I, I think it's kind of premature aging in a way. So all of those different physical and, and emotional, psychological impacts that it had, how much have you recovered? 70, 90%? Yeah, I would say I was at 10% of what I, what I had been before or 8%. I, I, was, I was completely destroyed. Wow, that and is really sick and disabled, that 10%. That's yes. really, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was a walking shell, I would say. I was, I was for nearly a year, was more dead than alive. But I would say I've recovered on most days. I feel now like 90%, some days even 95%. And I'm still improving. I'm trying a lot of things. I think sports, um, like um, high intensity interval training and also weightlifting, everything that can increase um, androgens naturally, not, not by supplementing it, but like the, the body has to do the work. I think all these things can help a bit and everything that may improve neuroinflammation, yeah. It sounds like you're uh, really on top of your diet as one aspect of keeping inflammation down. There's many people who are doing keto diet, but probably there's something to it, but I think it's also a hype. I, I try not to think too much of about the supplements, but if I find some papers or if I think there's some connection, then I try things. But I think there's also like some kind of religion to using many different supplements in the community. And I think it's also a problem because it distracts people from really taking action. They're waiting for scientists and doctors to solve the problem for them, but no one will come and solve their problem. So I think it's okay to take supplements, but I think people should, especially in the community, they should get involved more and do everything they can to organize fundraising, research, uh, to connect with science, to build up organizations, to, to get the voice out. And I think, it's far too little what is done there from, from the side of the community. It's very easy to, to, um, to say one is a victim and the doctors and scientists have to solve this. I think with this attitude, it can, it can take 20, 30 years if there's any treatment at all. But if we really wanna have a treatment that works for everyone, we have to understand the disease and that means we have to do more than just trying different supplements that others already have been taken. And there's no, no, no clear pattern why it works in some people. Maybe it's coincidence and why it doesn't work in others.
Oh, so not everybody who um, has side effects from finasteride, even when they taper off of it, will recover like you have. Some of them will remain quite sick. A lot, a lot. Actually, I'm very, very lucky. I, I was a really, really bad case. And I'm very, very lucky to be at 90% again. Like many people I spoke to, they they never recovered. They stay at 60, 70%. There's many people who just have erectile dysfunction or loss of libido and attraction. Um, but there's also people who are, who can't work anymore, who who have so much brain fog that they can cannot think, that they're constantly suicidal. We have a high level of suicides with that syndrome and there's no treatment for it. And it's usually it's persistent. Some people recover, probably it's a natural recovery in some people who are just lucky, but most, they don't recover. They never recover. Many take their lives. And I had a friend from my good times back before I even knew about this disease and, and uh, we, we lost contact. And one day I, I heard my friend saying, you know, this guy, he, he's dead. He killed himself. And I was like, what? but why? He, he was like very attractive guy, very successful with women. He just uh, finished his studies with A grades. He was very charming, very uh, always in a good mood and very balanced. I found out that he he started calling all my friends like that he can't relax anymore, can't sleep anymore. And later he was also taking finasteride. Then one day I connected his mom and uh, she confirmed that he was also taking antidepressants because he, he, he really felt really bad. Uh, he also had erectile dysfunction. So combining all this, I'm pretty sure he had post-finasteride syndrome and he didn't even know not even nor his parents he just jumped from the 10th floor didn't leave any note i was completely shocked and i think there's many 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 cases out there who have this syndrome they don't know they end up in psychiatry many of them kill themselves many doctors don't believe them it's horrible it's horrible we, we have to get that word out and probably there's many many people who who just have a little bit loss of stamina, just a little bit loss of erectile function, just a little bit insomnia, uh, maybe just dry skin and they don't know where it's going, coming from. And it just, yeah, they don't see the connection to the medication. Yeah, yeah. It makes you really wonder how many folks out there are being impacted to varying degrees. Many, so many. Your own journey, backing up a wee bit, so you go into medicine and then your specialty psychiatry and then your sort of subspecialty is psychosomatic medicine. And then you become a patient and you get to experience the healthcare system on the other side. And it sounds like that was a stark contrast for you. It is, it is. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a very problematic issue for me. Um, I mean, like there, there's a similar disease, probably the same triggered by SSRIs called post-SSRI sexual, sexual dysfunction. The same disease also can be triggered by, by isotretinine, acutana, which is uh, against uh, acne. And it's a big problem. It's very rare, but now I also see like, okay, probably we also had patients in hospital that we were treating with SSRIs um, who had this disease, or I, I saw very, very suicidal patients where we thought he has depression, but he was on finasteride. Maybe it was finasteride, you know? And there's no education on this. And I think in general, like of all specialities, probably um, psychiatry is the worst because they still use diagnostics that were used like 200 years ago, you know, just describing the disease with your own words, with your own judgment, except they don't have any biomarkers, you know? So if I wanted, I, can, I could diagnose everyone a, a depression. And I, th I think it's, there's also some kind of inflation of this disease because nowadays people or the society doesn't accept that there's periods in life where, where, it's, where it's tough 
and you have to go through this. And by definition, at least in Europe, if you have longer than two weeks a bad mood, that's a depression. That's ridiculous. I mean, there's also if, if someone died, it can be six months. But I mean, some people, they have grief for longer times and it's not pathological. And if, I, I would say if you're really in a problematic life or, or situation, it's healthy to feel bad. I mean, it, w it wouldn't be good to feel good because those emotions are there that you make a change. If, you, if you're in a terrible social situation and you should change something, but then you take a feel good drug, probably you don't have the motivation to make any changes. How do you want to mature at all? I, th I think this is a big, big problem in society and this needs to change. We, we should be very careful giving um, antidepressants. We, we even don't know what's doing on a molecular level. There's no long-term studies. There are some observational studies that, that uh, people who take antidepressants uh, have a higher risk of getting Alzheimer's. We don't know if this is a cause, but we have to be really, really careful. I mean, those most, most of these drugs on the market since not a very long time, we don't have uh, a lot of data. How, how, what is the risk for it in 20, 30, 40, 50 years? So, and it, it can also affect the DNA and m make epigenetic changes like um, changes in the gene expression. And most doctors, most psychiatrists are not aware of this. And yeah, especially in psychiatry, so many things could change. I think in general, we need a medicine which is more preventive than, than we, we're just treating symptoms, you know, even with high blood, blood pressure, uh, it's, not a tr it's not a cure, you know, you ha still have to take the medication once you, once you stop the medication, your blood pressure is up again, or even worse, maybe you even suffer a stroke because it's going up even higher. There's many evidence uh, that with lifestyle changes, you actually could cure uh, high blood pressure. You could actually cure arteriosclerosis. But in med school, we don't even have one hour of nutrition. I mean, we, we know about proteins and carbs and we think we know what's healthy and whatnot, but we don't look at studies and you know which biomarkers are biomarkers for long-term health, you know, which, which biomarkers are there that can show um, that you get less mortality. Like for example, if, uh, looking at, at uh, inflammatory markers, very important. If inflammatory marker are a little bit higher, something is going on in your body and no doctor looks at these markers. I think there should be a change where we take all these different nutritions and we look at the biomarkers and there are studies doing this. And then we see, okay, which uh, diets are actually healthy, you know, looking at these specific biomarkers. And we don't have any lessons on this on, in medicine. It's horrible, it's horrible. I think we could prevent so many diseases, but there's also, I mean, it's easier for people. People always, or not always, but many people prefer taking the easy solution and they just want to come and someone should fix their problems. Um, and I think this needs to change from both sides. Doctors have to be more preventive. There needs to be more incentives to prevent diseases and not just to treat symptoms. And on the other hand, uh, there needs to be a change in society where patients don't just go to the doctor to fix their problems, but they are responsible for making their lifestyle choices and um, pills should only be the last solution. I mean, I've got to say, Simon, that is some great insight uh, into what really needs to change within the healthcare system and within the public who engages with the healthcare system. And I think it's only because you've had that experience of going through training as a doctor and being really, really sick and having the healthcare system not be able to help you. I often maintain that the best physicians are the ones who've been really, really sick and the health system hasn't been able to help them. Those are the ones who uh, understand what really sick people are going through. Um, when you mentioned about the pathologization of normal emotions that we may experience throughout our life, 
loss and grief, it, it just occurred to me that that has been taken a step further and that it's become also the monetization of the pathologization. So with psychiatry's connection with uh, Big Pharma and producing the, the psychiatric medications. Yeah, I think it's a really, really big problem. Um, probably even in the United States more than in Europe. Uh, I think there's a too tight connection between pharma and uh, medicine, the doctors. I saw the problem in, in university where the professors who do the studies on certain things, they get the money from the farmer, but they are also doing um, the, the lectures for, for the students. So, of course, in a way, they're already biased towards pharma and be, being pro-pharma. I mean, there's nothing bad about pharma, but I mean, I mean they're just thinking more in terms of, of pharma, and, and they're also the ones making the next generation of doctors. I think that's a big problem. And especially in the States, I think that's a big problem that we have, doctors can, in the States can earn a lot of money by promoting themselves and, and, and making deals with pharma. And I, th I think this is, this is crime in a way, you know, it shouldn't be like this, uh, especially in, in, in healthcare, there should be really, really strict rules that you don't, uh, mix pharma, medicine, and I mean doctors and and politics. I mean these the healthcare should be the last sector where people make money on on the cost of your health. They they also have it gives incentive for over prescription, for example, and it should be the opposite, right? I mean there should be more incentive to to make the best best possible medicine and do the best preventive medicine, uh, and also yeah, extend the lifespan of people and, and not just like treating symptoms. And I think there's no good incentive for this. Uh, the incentive goes rather the other way, you know, making yourself rich on the cost of, of health of other people and, and, and selling yourself as a, like when I see the, those videos of, of doctors in, in the US, how they talk about themselves and I see them as salesmen. I don't see, see them as, as man of signs and that I would trust. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's horrible. Something needs to change. We need other incentives. Yeah, I absolutely concur. The, the medical system needs to be really shaken up or turned upside down or it needs to, uh, a big paradigm shift needs to happen. I mean, Finasteride is also changing the expression of some of the um, enzymes in the liver, which, which are for detoxification, but also for the uh, metabolism of, of sexual hormones. And the same uh, enzymes are also expressed in the brain. And what I noticed, for example, is that I, I used to drink a lot of coffee. Uh, now I can't drink no coffee at all. I, I, I was drinking seven cups of coffee on a good day, like a few years ago, but if I drink now just uh, like a quarter cup of coffee, the next two days are going to be going to feel really really sick, and uh, and my sleep's going to really be really bad. I don't know. Maybe it affects the cortisol, but may prob and many other people they also report that they really really differently react to medications. So I, I think some of these enzymes which are in the liver and also in the brain could be affected and uh, it would make sense a lot. Probably there's some kind of methylation and epigenetic changes in these, these enzymes and genes. Um, but as long as we don't have studies and data, we, we cannot say for sure. Many things point toward, towards that. Once I started finasteride, like my liver enzymes went up, although I was living quite healthy and suddenly my triglycerides were skyrocketed so that even like a doctor I went to said like it must be genetical. And later, it was like five times, six times higher than now for no reason at all. Yeah, also this points towards some changes in the liver. We also see in some studies that finasteride and dutasteride, which is another similar uh, medication, uh, can affect the liver and lead to liver disease in rare cases or cause diabetes, which is also related to, to the metabolism in the liver. So there could be something to it. And I think definitely one day we, we should make a study and 
see what's going on and deliver all of these enzymes. Yeah. Uh, so now that you've had this huge experience, what's your view of psychosomatic medicine? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny uh, because um, now I'm just like lacking one one year to finish my specialization, and <laughs> I started medicine to actually become a psychotherapist. Uh, in Germany, you have like two different paths. You can either study psychology, but I didn't like statistics. And I thought like, okay, if I study medicine, I love the body, uh, like to understand systems and I can still go into medicine. So I went through medicine. And one thing I really liked about psychosomatic medicine in Germany is that they have this holistic approach that they look at the body, but also at the mind. They also use a lot of resources like meditation and all these things. And I really like this approach. They really take a lot of time with their patients. I always called them more like a clinic for psychotherapy than I, it didn't feel like psychiatry, you know? It's like more, we called, also called it psychiatry light because we didn't have any psychosis there or bipolar diseases, but mostly uh, depression and uh, life crisis and eating disorders. So I really, really enjoyed a lot doing a lot of psychotherapy there with the people. But I'm also very skeptical now about psychosomatic medicine because I think, did you see the, the movie Unrest, the film from Jenna Brea? Um, she was also talking with that scientist talking about like the beginnings of HIV. And I, I think they said, in the, at the first, they thought that HIV is a psychosomatical disease because they didn't find any, any wrong <laughs> biomarkers. I mean, that's a really big warning sign, right? And what we see now is that one disease after another in psychosomatic medicine, which is purely psychosomatic, is falling down. There was a Nobel Prize uh, for, I think it was discoveries in the 90s where in, in the past, we thought uh, gastric ulcera, you know, um, they, they're, they're just psychosomatical, you know, you have psychosomatical problems and then you get this ulcera. But what they found out later, and they, they got a Nobel Prize for it, is actually we have some oftentimes bacteria there that cause this disease. So it's not psychosomatic, but, you know, you really have a pathology going on there. And since they can treat it, they can treat most kinds of uh, gastric ulcera. That's one, one example. Now there's um, chronic fatigue syndrome, right? So it, this was meant to be a psychosomatic disease, at least that's what we learned, right? And we're trying to cure this. And now we see many biomarkers are upside down. Something is going on. We don't know what's going on, but you know, for sure something is not right. So it cannot be psychosomatical. We see similar things with uh, fibromyalgia. Yeah, I saw these cases in, 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 in psychosomatical clinics. Also there, we found now in, in there's new papers where they found significant changes in certain biomarkers. Not, nothing specific, but also this is pointing towards something else. And even in depression, you know, we see now, oh, it's not just depression, there's different subkinds of depression. And in many subkinds, you have these high inflammation markers where they're coming from. There must be some kind of, of disease or destruction going on. And no doctor looks for these uh, inflammatory markers, which is horrible because you could actually probably cure one third of depression just by getting down these inflammatory biomarkers. So I see one disease after another falling in, in psychosomatic medicine. And I think we should be very, very, very careful about saying, you know, we couldn't find anything, so it must be psychosomatic. A psychosomatic approach can also always be good as an additional support or maybe as a trial, maybe it is psychosomatic and let's see if you get better or not. But if it doesn't get better, yeah probably on the wrong track. You know, you shouldn't just say like, this is for sure psychosomatic. There's no biomarker to prove that it's psychosomatic. We should be very, very 
careful because not finding anything doesn't mean there's nothing, right? We can only find what uh, with with the technology that's available and with you know the the panels that we do. You know, usually we don't test for everything, so maybe there's something we didn't test, or maybe we don't have the technology yet. Maybe we don't have the insights yet. Even in the blood, uh, we just discovered like 50% of biomarkers and molecules. What about the other 50%? What is if there's a disease where maybe one of these other 50% is there's something wrong, but we don't know yet. We can't prove it. We don't have any biomarker for it. So it would be very, very careful to say this is purely psychosomatic. Uh, we can always try this approach, but I think we're not allowed to say uh, definitely this is psychosomatic. Yeah, I because all of my counseling clients have been harmed by the medical industry and they've all been gaslighted at, on some level or another, in addition to other types of medical harm. I can, from, from my perspective and from my experience, um, there's so much harm done by psychosomatic medicine and I don't see a lot of benefit. Like there's a lot of misdiagnose as psychosomatic that turns out to be biological, rarely goes the other way. Rarely does somebody have a, a psychological problem and it gets diagnosed as biological. And, and I think one of the biggest harm is the stigma. You know, you, if you just say like, if you put a stamp on it and say like, this is psychosomatic, this is like, you know, the road ends there. You're not gonna do further studies. You're not gonna look more into what, what could be the real cause. Then it's just like, you know, it's finished. But I, I think we shouldn't stop there. I mean, we should never, as long as someone is suffering and continue to suffer, we shouldn't stop and say like, you know, file closed, never. At the peak of my feeling bad from that disease, my, my flatmate kicked me out of my, of, of my uh, where, where I lived. I had to move with my girlfriend, my partners, they uh, split up the company behind my back. Like everything came together. I got very sick. Yeah, I mean, luckily in Germany, we, we have we have stayed in uh, the state that is taking care of you. If, if something happens, I wasn't really scared of ending up on the streets, but it was like just horrible, you know, when everything comes together and then you have this disease on top and you cannot even fight for your, for your rights um, to get your shares of your company or, or to stay in that flat and explain like why, why you're so silent and why you withdraw a lot. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm also really, really glad because this also taught me how to fight, <laughs> even if it's really, really difficult. I think I matured a lot in that time. It sounds like you may have experienced post-traumatic growth. Uh, what is that? <laughs> Uh, so you've heard of post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah. Yeah. And so a, a potential stage after that is growth. So when you make meaning out of your experience, either a personal experience or change on a system level or relationship level. Yeah. Sounds pretty much like Viktor Frankl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, I like this approach. So... What are you doing now with your passions and your energy and your motivations? I mean, I'm fighting for solving this disease. I can't solve it myself. I found it in association where now a charitable organization, and we make sure we get we organize we organize funding, we organize research, uh, we get together with other diseases that share similar. Or that challenge that have similar challenges in, in terms of stigma, in terms of symptoms where there might be an overlap in in maybe a pathology, because those diseases are very rare. We're trying to partner up with these other organizations and groups so that we finally have a voice. Because right now there's no public grants for research of that diseases and we urgently need money to make progress on studies and finally solve these diseases so my message to all people out there to all victims out there don't wait don't just take supplements join us and 
no one will come and solve these diseases. You know, if we're just waiting, we're gonna wait the next 30, 50 years. But if we all come together and we work on this together and everyone finds a small part that he can contribute, then we can change this. Maybe we can solve this disease sooner or later in five, 10, maybe 15 years. The more we are, the faster we're gonna be. The longer you wait to join us, the longer it's gonna to take to solve this. So where can folks connect with you on social media, Simon? I mean, the best way to find me is on Twitter, Simon Breidert. Um, if you just like uh, look for postfinasterate syndrome on Twitter, you probably find me because I, I tag it a lot. And you can go and visit our association. And I'm always glad to connect with people and to network. Uh, we're currently also trying to get 100 patient stories. So we're very much interested in that. And you can find us under pfsresearch.org. That's our new website. It, we're still working on, on improving it, but yeah, that's where you can find us. So that was pfsresearch.org. And I'll include links to both your Twitter and your website in the show notes for folks. Well, thank you, Simon, for sharing not only your story, but for also the advocacy work you're doing. Uh, it's really, really important. And just that transition that you experienced as a medical doctor to a patient and now to an advocate, I think the, the value that you have gained out there is needs to be shared with a lot of folks. So I hope you make great strides with your efforts. Thank you. And thank you a lot for having me. Uh, it's really important to get this word out. Absolutely. Thanks, Simon. Well, a big thanks to Simon for sharing his experiences and for the work he's doing in bringing awareness and education around post-fedasteride syndrome. And if you suspect that the symptoms that you're experiencing may be attributable to finasteride, uh, you can check out Simon on Twitter or check out his website at pfsresearch.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Simply go to patreon.com to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.